Anyway, that was a week that was. And um, I'm going to sort of concentrate on the May the 6th um, elections in Britain. Um, we had elections in Wales, Scotland, throughout England in terms of mayors, local elections. Um, we didn't have any elections in North. Um, just jumping the on that one. Uh, we're sort of planning a um, meeting uh, for next week on uh, what we're calling the crisis of um, unionism. I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. Anyway, uh, May the 6th, uh, the sort of standout, I suppose, is the Hartlepool election. Uh, we all know, we've been told n times, that uh, Hartlepool, since it was first created back in um, 64, I'm talking about as a constituency, it's been in the hands of um, the Labour Party. Um, I know with any constituency that, you know, if you add enough countryside in, um, you know, um, that would explain its uh, marginal nature um, uh, further back. Nonetheless, this is a huge blow uh, to the Labour Party. Um, and, you know, it really does underline uh, that, um, over recent years, uh, we've entered into a different political territory that um, in Britain, when I was young at least, um, you know, we had Labour Party, we had the Tory Party, working class people tended to vote Labour, um, middle class people tended uh, to vote uh, Tory. Um, either way, you could sort of reasonably match um, income, um, trade union, organisation um, onto politics. Things have got a lot more complex uh, recently. Of course, in uh, Northern Ireland, that has always been the case since the creation 100 years ago of the six county state let. We've had the Irish national question and uh, whatever you want to call it, the um, loyalist, unionist, Protestant, British Irish uh, question. Uh, and of course, in Scotland, uh, over the last decade or so, uh, we've had the national question and that's grown and grown. Uh, and I'll discuss Scotland in, in, in a little while, but suffice to say that the SNP has been the dominant party. We've had a dramatic decline in terms of the Labour Party. It should be stressed uh, for those, um, you know, um, um, maybe uh, sh shouldn't need it stressing, but it should be stressed that historically, and I'm talking about in uh, the um, mid 50s, in the 1950s, um, that there was a very strong Tory presence um, um, in Scotland. There still is. Uh, but it, it, it's the Tory party and the Labour Party, that's the, the story in Scotland, have declined, and we've seen the growth um, of the SNP. But here in um, England, where I'm uh, uh, speaking from, uh, what we've seen is the erosion um, um, of uh, the Labour Party, at least 
in uh, what has been called uh, Labour's Red Wall, uh, that is uh, traditional Labour constituencies in the Midlands and in the north of England, in particular in the northeast of um, um, England. And that's where Hartlepool is, in the northeast of England. I couldn't tell you the exact history um, of um, the Hartlepool uh, constituency, but in my mind, uh, the uh, constituency is associated with um, a um, close advisor to Tony Blair, i.e. Um, um, Mandelson. Um, he was the um, spin doctor uh, for New Labour. Now, I don't know whether he was locally uh, selected or whether he was parachuted in. Um, David Mandelson comes from um, an old Labour um, family. Um, I think it was his uncle uh, that was a, a leading Labour minister, Morrison. Either way, that was his constituency. And uh, all you need to do is think of that area. And you had other politicians such as uh, Tony Blair himself, um, Miliband, uh, Ed Miliband had a constituency uh, up there. Anyway, uh, the, the long and the short of it is that uh, um, Hartlepool, uh, and this is my basic uh, thesis uh, for the whole of the elections in England, voted very heavily um, for Brexit. And, um, you know, Mandelson, uh, the, um, the Canada, or the, the MP that replaced Mandelson, the MP that they, they, they sought to put in were Remain. The party uh, um, is led, of course, by Sir Keir Starmer, who was uh, the Labour Party spokesperson for Europe uh, under uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And he, you know, uniquely was responsible for shifting the Labour Party uh, under Corbyn further and further uh, down the road of calling for a second referendum. And he was very much associated with the Labour Party having wrongly, wrongly in my view, very wrongly in my view, um, um, gone along with the referendum in the first place, David Cameron's referendum, how do I deal with UKIP? How do I, how do I deal with uh, my Brexiteers on the right? The Labour Party uh, accepted the legitimacy of the referendum. And so, uh, Corbyn was famously criticised for not being enthusiastic enough uh, um, in the campaign, uh, fighting uh, uh, against um, uh, Brexit. Um, and, and the point would be uh, that the Labour Party, uh, having pledged itself to accept the result of the referendum, then went on, and you might say, well, that's the job of an opposition, but then went on to line up uh, with what you might call left-wing Tories and liberals delivering one defeat after the other on um, David Cameron's uh, replacement, Theresa May. I mean, she was hammered uh, again and again and again uh, in the House of Commons. And certainly I was one of those uh, that was speculating at the time about the possibility of a national government 
Um, you know, there you are, you have it on display in the House of Commons. The vast majority of the PLP uh, had no time for Jeremy Corbyn. They were sabotaging Jeremy Corbyn. They were plotting against Jeremy Corbyn. And there they were with their soulmates on the left of the Tory party and in the Liberals sabotaging Theresa May's uh, attempt to come to a deal or to sell a deal uh, when it came to um, uh, Brexit. Um, she, she failed, she failed, she failed. Uh, and of course, this created the ideal conditions uh, for Boris Johnson, a late minute convert, remember, to Brexit, to come in. Uh, he was the obvious uh, candidate uh, to replace her. And uh, he, he got in by a landslide, of course, uh, smashed aside uh, uh, the opposition and ruthlessly uh, pursued Brexit. And where Theresa May went to the country uh, against a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn being ripped apart uh, by a civil war uh, and lost, uh, in effect, uh, to Jeremy Corbyn. Amazing uh, to me, and we can explain why that was the case. Um, Boris Johnson delivered the fatal blow uh, and he delivered the fatal blow by saying, get Brexit done. That was the slogan that Johnson and uh, his advisor Dominic Cummings came up with. Uh, and that was the slogan uh, that saw the Labour Party uh, under Corbyn reduced uh, to sort of 1935. This is a sort of terrible uh, defeat in the mid 30s when uh, Labour faced a national government. Um, um, you know, a Tory, liberal, national Labour uh, uh, government. And um, that delivered a huge blow uh, uh, to the Labour Party um, in terms of MPs and all the rest of it. Anyway, the point would be, uh, when we look at um, Hartlepool, um, what we've got is a situation of where Brexit and the question of the EU is still a living issue. It, Yes, Johnson got it done, but isn't it uh, worthwhile noting uh, that uh, in the run-up uh, to these elections across uh, Britain, we had the fishing dispute in, the, um, uh, in Jersey, and there's the, the French boats, French fishing boats besieging the port, and um, there's the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Express, Boris sends in the fleet and there you have two uh, uh, British uh, warships uh, being sent in. Wonderful publicity. And it shows you that although uh, Brexit has happened, the question of Europe hasn't gone away. And what we've seen is a situation of where people have voted Brexit, people have voted uh, for UKIP, the UK Independence Party and Nigel Farage's other outfit, the Brexit party, these people defected uh, uh, to the Tory party. And that's what happened uh, on May the 6th. I mean, it, it's a pretty straightforward story uh, in Hartlepool. You could say, uh, and it's no doubt true that in Hartlepool, um, a lot of people saw the Labour Party as the establishment. Um, you know, as I said, it's been uninterruptedly um, you know, in control in terms of the MP in Hartlepool since the constituency was created. Yes, yes, yes. But also what we're seeing is a different sort of politics. And uh, what we need to understand, I think, is that in England, 
um, we're seeing a form of English nationalist politics. Um, and so in terms of we still have a class politics, but that's overlaid or, or made more complex uh, by the question of Europe. Um, so that's my explanation, at least, of Hartlepool. But it's also my explanation of what's going on elsewhere, at least in England. So we saw the Tories uh, also make gains uh, in local council uh, elections. And depending where you take your particular starting point, uh, as uh, we saw swings uh, to the Tory party of around about uh, 8% uh, in some parts of, of, uh, of the country. Again, just sort of reinforcing that thesis, when you uh, look at the southeast uh, of uh, England, the swing, and there was a slight swing uh, to the Tory party, but it's almost imperceptible. Um, so the Labour Party is selling this as, uh, well, it's a mixed picture. It is a mixed picture, but nonetheless, there's no disguising uh, that, that the Tories did very well and the Labour Party did badly. Uh, in my view, um, um, the main factor uh, that explains this uh, is the Brexit factor, is the Europe uh, factor, and uh, the willingness of former Labour voters, one, uh, to embrace the Brexit Party, UKIP, and now uh, uh, the Tory party. Um, okay. Uh, as I said, uh, there, uh, there is a, a mixed picture, and certainly when we look at Wales, uh, what we see is Labour Party uh, actually make 5% uh, uh, increase uh, in their vote. And again, it's worthwhile pointing out that uh, um, the Labour Party um, in Wales uh, isn't led by a, um, a Keir Starmer uh, clone. Uh, Drayford is uh, of the left. Uh, and if you want to say, you know, where is politics lie, uh, they basically lie uh, where Corbyn uh, was when he was leader um, uh, of, of the Labour Party. OK, so what we also then need to bring in uh, uh, to the discussion is what is famously being talked about as the COVID bounce. And of course, what we're talking about is the vaccine uh, uh, bounce that uh, if we look at uh, Boris Johnson and the Tory government, it had a very bad COVID to begin with. All we need to do is think about, you know, PPE, uh, the corruption, uh, the bungling. Um, yeah, that was the picture uh, early on. But on the other hand, what uh, um, uh, Britain has had is a good vaccine uh, program. And in, and in my view, uh, what this points to is not the success of the Tory programme, but the fact that the Tories were forced to turn to state measures uh, to override the market. So the biggest vaccine um, in Britain, which is what I had, I suspect what most uh, comrades have had, is the Oxford um, 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 vaccine, uh, which was done hand in hand with uh, AstraZeneca, which is an Anglo a British, uh, uh, an Anglo-Swedish uh, company, but it was specifically done on the basis of AstraZeneca not making a profit um, on it. So the government spent money uh, developing uh, this vaccine uh, and the scientists that developed it were initially insisting uh, 
um, on um, uh, no patent rights, no um, um, intellectual property rights over this um, uh, vaccine. Either way, this was done not on the basis of profit, but on the basis of need. And I think that needs to be uh, stressed. Either way, what we had uh, is uh, a very, um, how should you put it, uh, high publicity illustration of the federal nature of the UK at the present time. Um, so the United Kingdom isn't just made up of bits and pieces that were put together uh, over feudal uh, and early modern times. What we have is a devolved health service. So Drayford is in charge of the Welsh Health Service. Nicholas Salmon, Nicholas Salmon, Nicholas Sturgeon, excuse me, is in charge of the Scottish uh, Health Service. And almost Boris Johnson is in charge of the English uh, government. And as I said, with the vaccine, uh, there's no doubt that that has been hu a huge success. Uh, I don't know the exact figures at the moment, uh, but I, for example, uh, am waiting a week away from my second jab. Um, so in terms of the older population, they've all been inoculated if you want one. Uh, and now uh, they're ending, um, you know, that program with the second jab. And there's a promise of uh, a booster sometime in the winter to deal with variants. Either way, all devolved administrations had a good uh, vaccine program. So Mark Drayford has done well in terms of publicity in Wales, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, and it has to be said the Tories um, in England. None, nonetheless, in terms of my explanation of how well uh, the Tories have done, my main point remains uh, Brexit. Now, some on the left have said, well, you can't blame Corbyn for that one, uh, can you? Uh, and my answer to that is, well, that ain't true. Now, I'm not blaming uh, Corbyn, uh, but I do blame the Corbyn question, because if you want to look at why um, Labour lost last time in 2019, yes, it was Europe, but it was also the right campaigning against Corbyn. It was the right wing uh, that was saying that the Labour Party is... Um, I should put it awash uh, with uh, anti um, Semites. Uh, the Labour Party basically uh, isn't fit uh, to govern. And the idea uh, that all you need to do is put in a new leader and that's all behind you, uh, I think is naive. And I think the left is being naive when it says it's got nothing to do with Corbyn. Um, this is from The Sun um, and this is from. Um, Lord, uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, some right wing Labour. Um, Lord Ashton. Lord Ashton, is it? Writing in the sun. Anyway, he's ex um, right wing Labour. And he, he coined a term, I think he's coined a term, Long Corbyn, uh, you know, a pun on Long Covid. Now, think back uh, to Theresa May's perhaps most famous speech to the Tory party conference when she talked about the Tories still being viewed as the nasty party. What that was uh, referencing is what you might want to call long Thatcher. Uh, long after Thatcher had gone, the Tory party, depending on how you want to take it, was tainted by 
or at least associated with Thatcher. And clearly from Theresa May's point of view, uh, this was uh, um, a negative. And she wanted to stop the Tory party being the nasty party. She wanted to create distance uh, in, in terms of uh, the Tory party uh, from the legacy of Thatcher. And so if we take the Labour Party, have they created uh, a situation of where there's um, a complete separation between the Labour Party and Corbyn? Uh, I would say no um, um, on that one, even though uh, Corbyn is no longer um, a serving uh, member of the uh, parliamentary uh, Labour Party. Um, and all you need to do to illustrate the point I'm making is look at the response of the Labour left. Um, you know, people like John McDonnell, um, people like Diane Abbott. And in the process of saying it's nothing to do with Jeremy Corbyn, what they do is they blame Starmer and they say, well, they should have been running um, on the politics of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, precisely, you know, out of their own mouths uh, comes long uh, Corbyn. And of course, the reply from the right is you must be joking. Uh, we tried that when? Last year, you know, in 2019, okay, not quite a year, well, just over a year ago, we had a general election in the run-up to Christmas and look at the result. Um, so the legacy of Corbyn clearly uh, is uh, a material uh, factor, just as the legacy of um, uh, Thatcher uh, was a living legacy after uh, Thatcher had ceased to be uh, prime minister. Now, what we have, of course, from the left is calls for um, Starmer to resign, Starmer must go, proposals to you know, go to the next Labour Party conference, change the rules in order to make it easier for a left winger to run. Well, I, I, myself, I'm reminded of um, you know, our friends in the SWP uh, when David Cameron was still prime minister going around with placards um, Cameron out, 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 or to words uh, to those to that effect. And my, my response to that was, well, OK, uh, you get rid of David Cameron. Who are you going to get? You're going to get this was me writing at the time. You're going to get Theresa May. You're going to get Boris Johnson or you get Michael Gove. Well, it turned out uh, to be after Michael Gove had stabbed Boris Johnson in the back, turned out to be Theresa May. We saw the same thing again with Theresa May. There's Theresa May suffering one humiliating defeat after another in the House of Commons. There's the comrades in the SWP parading around Theresa May, out, out, out. Who were you going to get? Uh, well, you got what you should expect. You would have got Boris Johnson. That's what they got. And Boris Johnson then romped home uh, against uh, the Labour Party. And I simply asked the question, OK, um, you force uh, uh, um, Keir Starmer out somehow. I don't see him being forced out myself. Who are you going to get? I mean, um, does anyone seriously think that anyone on the left stands a chance, even with the reduced, um, you know, um, a barrier in terms of the parliamentary Labour Party. Does anyone think that anyone on the left stands any chance? And if they did stand a chance, what sort of a programme would they deliver? But no, the reality is there isn't a serious challenger on the right uh, to Keir Starmer, this side of a general election. Now, my hunch, and it's no more than that, 
is given the um, um, COVID uh, vaccine bounce and given the news story, which is completely predictable, completely expected uh, that Britain uh, next year, or I, I think over the next 12, 12 months, the, the British economy is going to grow at a faster rate than at any time, um, you know, this side of World War II, um, i.e. even the boom uh, that we saw in terms of British industry with European ruins and, um, you know, full production, full employment. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I, I think the prediction is 7% uh, growth. Well, that ain't going to last. Um, so my hunch would be, given that everyone knows that, is that Boris Johnson, even with an 80 majority, or is it 81 now, Boris Johnson with his thumping majority, we should expect a general election pretty soon, um, um, uh, i.e., roughly speaking, in a year's time. And then, yes, the people that are now jockeying um, for uh, Labour leadership positions. I mean, you can go down to the betting shop and as I understand it this week for this moment, um, it's the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, a former leadership contender, um, no longer an MP. Um, he's sort of thrown his hat in the ring by saying, well, if the Labour Party wants me to play a leading role, just let me know. Uh, but you've got others um, in the running um, you know, Yvette Cooper has been mentioned. Jess Phillips has been mentioned. Either way, I don't see any of them actually making a leadership bid this side of a general election. Yes, um, as things look at the moment, and there's a long time, <laughs> years a long time in politics, uh, what we would predict is that Boris Johnson would win um, um, uh, another thumping majority. Keir Starmer then falls on his sword and then we see uh, the battle uh, to replace him. So, OK, to keep people busy, some on the left are making the call uh, to get rid of Keir Starmer. But the reality would be that uh, um, the, the replacement would be from the right of the party. Uh, whatever people say about um, uh, Andy Burnham, in essence, he's coming from mainstream Labour. He doesn't represent anything, um, you know, uh, from the left. Um, yes, he's not on the far right of the Labour Party. Um, you know, he's traditional uh, uh, Labour right. OK, so I've also heard um, the explanation uh, for Labour's very poor showing uh, that it's the, uh, the rank and file going on strike and not canvassing. Well, we're still in. Um, you know, a COVID pandemic. Uh, but no, I'm, I don't buy that one. Maybe as a marginal, 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 marginal factor. But I really would say uh, that Europe uh, is the key, at least in England, uh, to understand, uh, you know, what's, what's been happening and what is still uh, happening. Okay, I've already mentioned um, Scotland. Uh, and in Scotland, what you've got is a very different politics. Um, you know, back in the 50s, back in the 60s, into the 1970s, um, Scotland in essence was still a two-party uh, system. You did have a spike of uh, SN SNP support around the oil question, 
but in recent times, it's become what you could call and what uh, various journos call uh, uh, it as a one-party state. We all knew that the SNP would win. Uh, there was never any debate about that. Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon was uh, safe to win, um, you know, another term as first uh, minister. The question was in Scotland, uh, was the SNP going to win an absolute majority? Because the voting system in Scotland is both on a sort of constituency level, but there's also a top up um, element and it's designed. The system is designed not to give one party a parliamentary majority. So it's completely the opposite to Westminster and first past the post. So it's very difficult for any party, including the Labour Party, uh, to win an absolute majority. So this, this, the architecture of both the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament, or should I call it the Welsh Parliament now, I think, uh, and the Scottish Parliament has been specifically designed to prevent majority. Um, so this time round, that had a particular significance because uh, Sturgeon and the SNP specifically ran um, on the programme of a second referendum. 2014, they narrowly lost, but they lost. And uh, the famous phrase was used quite casually, once in a generation, um, if nothing changes. Well, you know, sorry, Tories. Uh, there's been Brexit. <laughs> you know, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate uh, bid uh, from the SNP's uh, point of view. Either way, that was the question. And um, uh, the, the basic story is, no, they were too short. Um, so um, the SNP, I think, marginally increased its position. Uh, the Greens went up by two. That's not insignificant because the Greens are also committed to um, Scottish independence, but they don't put it at the top of their agenda. Now, from Nicola Sturgeon's point of view, in my opinion, that's the result that she secretly wanted. I'm not suggesting for a second that she plotted uh, that, um, but Nicola Sturgeon definitely doesn't want a Catalonia. You know, she's looked at what's happened uh, over there. Um, uh, and I don't think she fancies a prison sentence. I don't think she wants or is inclined to go for illegality. Now, that would have been different if she had uh, a majority. There would have been a huge pressure to deliver um, on a referendum. Um, and it would have been different if Alex Salmon's um, party, Alba, had succeeded in holding the balance. Um, Alex Salmon would have positioned himself as the um, more nationalist, more militant um, wing um, in the um, Hollywood Parliament. The Greens don't. The Greens position themselves as being, well, yes, we want independence, we want an independence referendum, but that's not the top of our agenda. And Nicola Sturgeon herself has actually been deliberately lowering expectations. So she's been saying that, well, of course, we're not going to go for a referendum while there's COVID. Now, anyone can tell you that's an extremely clever formulation, because as my understanding is from, you know, um, epidemiologists and GPs and people in the medical profession, is it looks like that uh, globally 
we're going to have to live with COVID for as long as <laughs> we live with the flu. That's my understanding. Now, maybe in the future we can get rid of it, but it does seem to me that here's a virus uh, that uh, we can get successfully inoculated against it, but it's going to still bloody well come back in the form of new variants from Australia or New Zealand. I'm just making that and being unkind to them. But, you know, India, Brazil, um, you name it, it will come back. It will keep coming back. So she's already put into the discussion a very elastic formula. Um, in other words, you know, while the flu lasts, while the cold lasts, um, we're not going to go for a referendum. Now, you could again take it from the point of view that it, it's when lockdown completely finishes and when uh, the economy is fully back up running. You can take it either way you want. But the point I'm making is she's she's already put into the discussion a formula that allows her to hold things back. And there's nothing in Scottish politics that now is pushing her um, along the road to Ill illegality. There will be a wing in her party uh, that wants that. Um, but, hey, she hasn't got a majority. She's relying on the Greens as a coalition partner. And Boris Johnson is doing what you'd expect him to do. And that's stonewalling um, on the question. No, no, no. He repeats uh, Alex Salmon's statement from 2014, once in a generation. So he talks about something like 2055. I mean, it's that sort of um, um, type stuff. Now, in my view, uh, again, looking at the present balance, and again, that can change very rapidly. Uh, Boris Johnson would almost relish a confrontation uh, with the SNP uh, uh, government. He would like a situation um, you know, analogous to um, Catalonia, um, you know, roughly half the population in Scotland, voting population, wants independence, wants a second referendum, but it's, it's not clear, you know, it would swing this way or it would swing that way. But Boris Johnson, you know, has stated that, you know, the worst thing about British politics at the present time, precisely as been illustrated by the COVID crisis, is this devolution. Uh, and clearly he's a, a, um, a centralizer and uh, you could imagine him, as I said, uh, relishing a potential confrontation where he forces down um, the SNP government um, um, in um, Edinburgh. So I think that um, the results in Scotland, um, I don't know who was expecting what. We all knew that would the SNP get a majority or not. It was too tight to tell. Well, it turned out to be she just didn't manage it. But I think that this result um, is a welcome result as far as Nicola Sturgeon is concerned, because it allows her uh, to hold back uh, from confronting the government um, in uh, Westminster. But it's also a good result as far as Johnson um, is concerned, because at least uh, he isn't faced with a constitutional crisis in Scotland, although um, as I've already said, you know, he might actually want uh, such a fight. OK, so how would this pan out in a general election? For what it's worth, this is what the pollsters tell us. 36% for the Tories, quite low. So we haven't got a situation of where, you know, the Tories have overwhelmingly, you know, swept, swept everything in, in front of them. The Labour Party, 29%. Um, so you know, significantly behind, but not 
sector massively behind. Then the Liberal Democrats who didn't have a good uh, day. And then we have others um, on 18 uh, percent. So that would be um, Plaid Cymru, but crucially um, um, the SNP um, in, in Scotland and, and loads of other uh, candidates ran because there were local elections, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so my basic um, argument now is looking, you know, with exceptions, yes, yes, yes. Um, but looking at the overall uh, uh, picture, what we have um, in England and in Scotland, not so much in Wales, but is a situation where class politics and nationalist politics uh, are now wound up uh, together. And um, that's not something we want. That is not something uh, we welcome. But it's something that the left has to adjust to and address. And we can't, um, um, how should we escape this situation by just wishing the past would come back um, to us. Um, we've got to do it with political answers. And that's a very difficult thing. Just to make the point, those that think they could ride the tiger, look at the situation. I mean, I think it's tragic, the situation of the left in Scotland. When I joined the Young Communist League back in the, you know, the midst of time, uh, this was in the late 60s, um, Scotland, in terms of the central belt, you know, mines, engineering, shipbuilding, that was red. Um, you know, historically, uh, the Communist Party was a real force um, in this part of Scotland. So the NUM, you know, had a communist leader. Um, Lanarkshire, you know, used to have a communist MP, Willie Gallagher. Um, that if we look at the industrial struggles, um, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, a name that comes to my mind is uh, Jimmy Reed. We had uh, the occupation of the UCS shipyards in, uh, in well, outside uh, Glasgow in Govan, led by Jimmy Reed and um, Jimmy Airley. Um, you know, there, there they are, the workers are occupying uh, this uh, shipyard and they have a work in. Huge, huge impact um, on uh, British politics. Now, in terms of um, these elections, what do we have? The Scottish Socialist Party which was telling us only a short time ago how superior they were to the English left, who apparently just split, split, split over trivial uh, issues. They actually did not stand a single candidate and their leader, Colin Fox, formerly of uh, militant tendency, basically says, well, we just haven't got the resources. I, I think that tells you that the Scottish Socialist Party to all intents and purposes is an X party. It's non-functional. And it basically fell in behind the SNP, as was always going to be the case. Uh, the great hero of the poll tax campaign, because Thatcher imposed the poll tax on Scotland, um, I think half as a um, provocation, a year before the rest of the country. And that, uh, that in that struggle, we saw the emergence of Militant and uh, Tommy Sheridan, um, who got elected to the Scottish Parliament, who famously swore his loyalty to the monarch 
uh, with his fist um, in, uh, in the sky saying, I will swear to serve the Queen Elizabeth and her successors, a wonderful demonstration of Republican defiance. He advocated in this um, um, Hollywood elections, vote one SNP, two uh, vote Alba. And of course, Alba didn't get anywhere. Um, he was formerly the uh, leader of Solidarity, uh, which split off uh, the SN, uh, SSP. Why did uh, the SSP split? Well, cut a long story short, Tommy Sheridan's sex life and uh, not being honest uh, about it and lying in court. I mean, and, and, and they criticised the English left or the left throughout the rest of the country as splitting over trivia. Uh, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. Uh, what did the SWP uh, advise uh, in this election. Vote Tusk, uh, trade union and socialist co coalition who had candidates uh, in Scotland. And that is all we have left of the left in Scotland. Um, and that would get, you know, what, 1%, 2%, you know, it's what, the, what our organisation could get if it stood a candidate. Uh, it's, you know, if we would say, well, we, at least we stood on principal politics. They stand on opportunist politics and would get the vote of, uh, you know, complete fringe. It's no longer uh, a player in national politics because, I mean, just to make the point for those that don't know, after Tommy Sheridan was left, the next set of election, he was joined by five others on the top up list. So they had six MSPs. Uh, now they're reduced to nothing. They're not standing, not one of their fragments is standing. Instead, they're advising people to vote um, Scottish nationalist. The SWP said that they couldn't advise people to vote SNP or ALBA because of their pro-capitalist and because of their bigoted politics. Well, pro-capitalist yes 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 the bigoted politics turned out to be some in um, um, Salmon's party who dare to question um, um, how should we put it trans rights and I personally anyway I'm not going to go into that one but I do think uh, that we should at least be using our brains um, on that question uh, as opposed to setting up a shibboleth either way uh, the point would be that the left virtually uh, no longer exists um, in Scotland uh, from the situation I described historically. Um, it's a tragedy. And there's nothing, nothing that tells us that the left in what I'm going to call England cannot go the same way, or Wales uh, for that matter. But in England, uh, yes, we're seeing the Brexit question, which wasn't just about 2016, wasn't just about 2017, which surprised me wasn't just about 2019. It's an issue that we need to understand will run and run and run because the Tories can keep playing it um, using different angles. They can artificially, how should we put it, conjure uh, the question of Europe, um, you know, um, um, into a political issue. And I've already illustrated it over fishing. Um, okay. So, What's going on? Well, there has been an argument that the Labour Party um, is now the party of what is called in a contemptuous way. You've got to say this in a contemptuous way, by the way, Gradland. 
graduate land. So what we have is this, um, yeah, I know we've got John Smith <laughs> uh, agreeing with that. Um, okay, well, my argument, first of all, is that the working class um, is constantly made and constantly remade. Uh, it's true uh, that there are very few miners left in Britain. And my expectation is not of a revival of the deep coal mine uh, industry, or for that matter, even the open cast industry. Uh, my expectation um, is that in order to be a, um, how should you put it, a worthwhile proletarian, as far as at least lots of big capital is concerned, and I don't want to simplify things, that having people go through and do a university degree is no longer um, the preserve of the middle class and your entry into what was the middle class professions, right? And what I'm talking about, the middle class professions, it used to be, used to be nursing. My grandmother was a nurse. And when my grandmother was a nurse, that is to be almost yet yeah, in the middle class. To be a doctor certainly was to be in the middle class. To be a lawyer was to be in the middle class. But now, right? A nurse no longer marries the doctor. The nurse now in Britain marries the policeman, right? The nurse now marries a skilled worker. This is no longer uh, a middle class. To be a teacher, right, is no longer viewed in Britain, you know, as a middle class profession. I mean, if I met a teacher, my general response is, you poor bugger, uh, you know, how do you cope with the kids? and all of the paperwork and, uh, you know, this sort of dehumanization and the proletarianization uh, of the work process. But my main point is precisely, okay, um, uh, we have uh, a working class that is being remade, uh, but we also have, uh, in, in that sense, a section of the working class that is being won over to the Tories because they explain um, the decay uh, of their areas, um, their lack of opportunities, they blame Brussels, they blame the EU. It's completely bogus politics, in my view, but that is a job that's been successfully done. And the left has played its role there, because while um, um, you did have a passionately pro-EU left, you also had an anti-EU left. And the precise problem was, just as the left trailed uh, the SNP in Scottish politics and adapted to, to narrow Scottish nationalism, the left uh, in England trailed behind one wing of the political establishment or the other. So the, the Brexiteers, although they talked about Lexit, didn't play the role that uh, Tony Benn played back in the early 70s when he sat along Enoch, alongside Enoch Powell, disgracefully. Uh, in my view. No, they played a role way, way in the distance. So the SWP, uh, Socialist Appeal, the CPB were camp followers way, way behind Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, um, and all the rest of it. And on the other side, uh, the pro-Remainer lot were, were taking money from Soros, uh, were following Chuka Uma, 
were following the Liberal Democrats, were following precisely uh, the likes of Starmer. And so we didn't have independent working class uh, politics. In our view, uh, we, the left should have fought to delegitimize uh, that referendum, uh, say we're not going to respect the result. This is a bogus uh, a form of democracy. It's anti-democracy. Um, I, I, you'd have paid a price for that. I readily accept that. Again, we can't rerun history. But the point I'm making uh, is that the left is in danger of um, complete marginalization. Um, and there's nothing that tells us that it, that it automatically springs back uh, because of pay disputes or because of NHS spending um, or anything like that. There's no easy way uh, forward. The left needs an answer, in my view, at the level of high politics. So it's very disappointing uh, to read left-wing responses to this on the basis of, well, voting doesn't really matter. What really matters is the politics of the workplace and the streets. Now, I'd be the last person to say that workplaces don't matter. They do. The streets matter, but so do elections. You know, <laughs> they do. They matter because they give you governments, but also think about it historically from the point of view of the left. They also provide you, as Tommy Sheridan and the SSP showed in the past, a platform, a national platform to project your alternative vision. The tragedy of the SSP is it wasn't a radically different uh, vision compared with uh, the Scottish National Party. Either way, uh, let's cast our minds back I mean, the classic example, of course, the Bolsheviks, I know, I know, I know, 1912 elections to the Tsarist Duma, one of the most undemocratic parliaments, surely in all of Europe, the Bolsheviks stand in the workers' courier, exclusive to the Bolshevik, uh, to the to the workers. They elect uh, the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks use that as a platform to um, spread the circulation of Pravda. The Bolsheviks win trade union elections, um, and, you know, increase their profile in front of the working class. Well, a lesson ought to be drawn uh, from that. OK. So let's get into the left responses a bit more detailed. Um, this is an ongoing news story. So um, I've just found out uh, just before this meeting started that Angela Rayner hasn't been sacked. This is um, um, Keir Starmer's deputy. He can't sack her as deputy. Uh, she was elected by the membership of the Labour Party as deputy leader, uh, and that's that. But she was sacked uh, by Keir Starmer. This was the story. Um, as um, chair of the Labour Party and campaigns coordinator. Now, whether because there's been um, an outrage reaction in the Parliamentary Labour Party from the rank and file. I don't know, but that story is now being denied. She hasn't been sacked. She's due for a promotion. Now, whether this actually turns out to be a sideways uh, promotion or actually a demotion, I don't know. But she's meant to be destined for a big, big role um, on the front bench. But listen to this. This is the left left's reaction to the defeat that the Labour Party did suffer in spite of London, in spite of Greater Manchester and all the rest of it on May the 6th. Uh, this is the left. 
And this is, first of all, um, the um, chair, uh, the, the joint chair of Momentum, uh, former John Landsman um, um, machine that was created out of the Corbyn um, uh, leadership campaign, Gaia Anthem. I presume that's a Sri Lankan um, name. Anyway, the comrade says that um, um, the um, sacking of Angela Rayner, which was yesterday's news, um, is a blatant scapegoat scapegoating. Now, notice that the left has been saying sack Keir Starmer. Um, is that blatant scapegoating? One presumes not. Uh, either way, that's blatant um, um, uh, scapegoating. Owen Jones. Um, um, well, Guardian columnist. Um, I would actually call him a former left winger, but he passes for left wing as far as the establishment um, is concerned still uh, uh, in Britain. And he also uses the same phrase, scapegoating. Um, Angela Rayner shouldn't be made to take all the blame. I don't think she will be. I don't think she was, but she was the coordinator. But then he says, you know, um, sacking a working class woman for the lack of vision shown by the Starmer leadership is the absolute pits. Uh, <laughs> um, I presume um, that we are now, well, I, I obviously as she isn't being sacked now, she's actually being promoted. I don't believe that story for one moment. Um, but I mean, does the left then launch a campaign as they did for Rebecca Long Bailey when she was sacked uh, from the front bench? Um, over the fake anti-Semitism uh, campaign? Do they launch a, um, a petition demanding her restatement? Um, well, I, I just think it shows you the low level of um, you know, left-wing agitation. And if we're talking about a lack of vision, I think you see it on display uh, out of uh, momentum and out of uh, the pen of, or, or the keyboard uh, of Owen uh, Jones. Okay, just um, uh, also just sort of uh, coming to a close now. Um, we do have um, the left getting together, which is uh, positive. We are told um, that uh, 30 organizations on the left uh, have been meeting. We're told that there are, there have been two uh, uh, such meetings. Uh, we've been told that that um, includes leading representatives from Unite, which is Britain's second largest union. We're told that it, it includes um, Matt Rack from the Fire Brigades Union. We're told that it includes the leader of the Bakers Union. We're told that it includes lead, leading figure from the CWU, the Communication Workers Union. We're told that it includes representatives of Momentum, uh, the Labour Representation Committee. Uh, also, we know uh, that it's included two representatives of the Labour Left Alliance. All good stuff. Uh, we're also told that the meetings have been chaired uh, by the Baroness, Baroness um, Chakrapati, uh, which is a bit of a strange one, but uh, we'll leave that one aside. I presume she's there representing the sort of Corbyn uh, parliamentary Labour Party. She, um, I don't think she's in the campaign group uh, because that's a campaign group of MPs. 
or maybe she counts as an MP because she's in the House of Lords. Either way, what's disturbing from our point of view uh, and um, uh, something that we protest about is that um, the Baroness announces at the beginning of the meeting that the precondition uh, for these 30 organizations to be in this, um, I presume, virtual room is to abide by the Chatham House rule. Uh, this is a singular, by the way. There's only one Chatham House rule, and it dates from 1927. And um, this is um, an unofficial um, establishment uh, body uh, that's expanded very much in recent years. But the long and the short of it is here's a think tank, a, an, ex, an exchange um, um, institution of where leading representatives of the bourgeoisie, either current or past, I presume also that would include uh, leading civil servants. Um, either way, this is their opportunity to speak to not quite their peers, but uh, um, fellow um, politicians and aspiring politicians on the basis of anonymity. So what you can do if you join Chatham House and you participate um, in these meetings is you can quote leading government sources say that's legitimate. So it's like the lobby, uh, but you are not able to say uh, that um, shadow minister X said or serving minister says or cabinet secretary says or general so-and-so so-and-so says. Right. So uh, this is the result of, in my view, universal suffrage. Um, if we look at the growth of suffrage, what that's meant is that uh, politicians have had to learn the art of lying. And all you need to do is look at the history. And I don't know the details in all countries, but look at the history of journalists reporting the proceedings of Congress or Parliament or the Senate, call it what you will. It used to be a criminal offence. So a journalist in Britain would go along to the House of Commons. There they are. They're making notes. They then publish. This is what I, I'm just making this one up now. So forgive me. This is what William Pitt, the elder, said in the House of Commons yesterday. Well, William Pitt in the House of Commons, when you had a very restricted suffrage, People like that used to tell the truth. They used to tell the truth to their fellow members of the ruling class. And so they could say, for example, well, ordinary people are scum. Uh, ordinary people are the unwashed. Uh, you know, democracy, well, that's the equivalent of anarchy and democracy stinks. Uh, you, you can read the speeches, you know, when they were initially reporting. As, as I understand it, um, that the change in bourgeois politics began, as you would expect, in the United States. So the United States, of course, never had um, universal suffrage until very late. You know, you had obviously no women could vote, no blacks could vote, no Indians could vote. But you had a situation of where something like universal uh, malehood suffrage appeared in various states at an early stage. And therefore, politicians had to learn... Uh, the art of lying. And that is something that British politicians then learn. And you saw that 
uh, develop in Europe. So at the time of Karl Marx, when Karl Marx was a young revolutionary, you know, reporting what was going on in the Prussian um, uh, parliament uh, and all the rest of it was a controversial thing to do. It could land you in trouble. But my main point is that in Chatham House, here's their opportunity. They can talk to their peers and they will show a degree of frankness, a degree, I don't exaggerate it, a degree uh, of honesty. So what on earth is the left doing adopting the Chatham House rule. I haven't got a clue what this is about. The idea that MI5 don't know anything about it is beyond me. I mean, surely they do. Does Keir Starmer not know anything about what's going on in these meetings? Surely he does. What's the purpose then of imposing this rule? Taken to the point, at least to my knowledge, in the Labour Left Alliance, where in terms of the official minutes of that organisation that have been published, no mention of the report uh, of this meeting of 30 organisations of the left even appears. So not only do we have non-attributed statements uh, about these negotiations of who's going to be on this list, what's the political uh, platform, even the existence of this meeting is denied, which to me is quite fantastic, given the left legitimately uh, was complaining uh, about momentum, uh, picking candidates, for example, for the Labour Party, NEC, behind closed doors, that, that simply announces that this is going to be the left uh, candidate. Well, that, in effect, is what is going on now. And in terms of our history, we've got a very different history uh, to um, the bourgeois um, establishment of the, you know, MPs that were landlords or, or capitalists or the representatives of landlords or industrial uh, capitalists. So I'm just reminded of the perhaps the most famous um, example of um, um, a left wing Congress. And I'm only using it as an example because everyone will know it. And that's the second Congress, the real first Congress, the founding Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party back there. Um, in 1903. Um, we all know the story. They all get together. They're in Belgium. They have to get out of Belgium because the czarist authorities are threatening the Belgium um, government with retaliation. And they scuttle over to um, Britain and they meet in a church in London. And we all know that they split. And um, first of all, you have the economists are told to go and leg it. Uh, we have the Bund, the Jewish Bund, walking out because um, the party, the majority say, well, no, you cannot exclusively represent the Jews. All you need to do is look at the ranks of the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. They're full of Jewish comrades, so you're not exclusively. Rep anyway, we all know how it ends. The Bolsheviks, the Iskra faction splits in two and we have the Mensheviks and we have uh, the Bolsheviks, the majority and the minority. And we all know the argument about the new Iskra and the role of Plekhanov and Martov. And we all know, we've all got a, at least a vague knowledge of Lenin's pamphlet, One Step Forward, Two Steps Back, describing all the votes throughout the Congress. And he begins with this, from our point of view, surely wonderful phrase. Well, don't just believe what I say, read the minutes. Go back, comrades, look at the minutes. And yes, they published the minutes. Um, of this meeting. So you can see what Plakhanov said. You can see what Martov says. You can see 
the disputes between leaders. You can see how the different factions are, are forming. And the reality is that is a party under illegality. That's a party, you know, that is full of um, false names. Uh, this is a party that has to, yes, not meet in Minsk or Petrograd or Warsaw, but has to meet in Brussels and then has to uh, leg it to, to London to have the freedom uh, to meet. But in Germany, meanwhile, you can still see the stuff online. You can read the minutes, and I'm talking about minutes of the executive committee. You can read the speeches of uh, the SDP, Social Democratic Party uh, deputies in the Reichstag. You can read the minutes of the Congress. It's, that was just normal. Indeed, you know, you can read the report, the founding Congress of the CPGB. You can look at all uh, the resolutions. And indeed, I think they went, uh, they displayed their naivety because the report of the first Congress of the CPGB has on the back of the pamphlet that they published the home addresses of all uh, the elected members of the Central Committee. Well, compare that, which, I, as I said, I think that's taking things a little bit too far. I'm not saying that that was a secret to the secret state. They would have known all of that. But the point I'm making is that, that openness in terms of politics uh, was all there. So you can precisely read um, in um, what would it be called? Um, the Call. That was the name of the British Socialist Party paper. Uh, the disputes between the comrades who were in the Socialist Labour Party, who were in the Communist Unity Group, and the comrades who used to be in the, the British Socialist Party. You can read all about the disputes and debates about um, prohibition of alcohol. <laughs> you can read it all um, and how they elected a leadership all of and who got what votes and all of that's there. And that should have been there. So what on earth is the left doing? Um, adopting Chatham House uh, rules. I think that shows you a collapse into official laborism, official left laborism. Well, our job on the left shouldn't be to promote the careers of um, left-wing laborites who inevitably, and I do say inevitably, bar very few exceptions, end up going to the right. Um, you know, the, the story is, of course, you start off as a young left-winger, but then you grow up and you learn that you've got responsibilities. And the key question for the left and the labor right is electability. And therefore you shift your politics in, in order to suit what they call the electorate, in reality, the bourgeois media. Uh, there have been some exceptions and the one that the outstanding one uh, in my mind, of course, is Tony Benn, um, famous phrase from Harold Wilson, former um, um, Labour Prime Minister, and he talked about Tony Benn, who began as a centrist, high-tech, you know, white heat of the technical revolution and all that stuff. He, he talked about Tony Benn immaturing with age, um, which I quite like that uh, phrase. Okay. Um, so uh, this is just to finish. So we, we in our organization, the CPGB, um, we view openness uh, as the best of our history. Um, you know, looking back at the Bolsheviks, looking back at the Social Democratic Party, looking back at the foundation of the CPGB, we then look at managerialism as being something that hollows out uh, the labor movement. And we see the horrible results 
uh, of that in Hartlepool um, and local elections and uh, the confusion that exists in the working class, the death of the left uh, uh, in Scotland. And so we've striven to tell the truth about our movement and its problems. So number one of our uh, publication, which we used to call The Leninist, revealed the fact that the Communist Party had factions, never previously admitted in the past. We described them, we admitted that we were one, of course. Um, we described the politics of these various factions, but we've done the same and we will do the same. Uh, we did it in the Young Communist League, uh, we did it in the Socialist Labour Party of Arthur Scargill, of where from day one Arthur Scargill was trying to bar us. Uh, they actually did ask, as delegates came into the founding Congress of the Socialist Labour Party, are you a member of the CPGB? Which I answered, no, I lied. Uh, we, had, we did have comrades in our ranks who couldn't tell a lie, like George Washington, and went, uh, 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 yes, well, fuck off. <laughs> But inside, we reported. We reported what was going on. Uh, we reported the bizarre nature of the Socialist Labour Party. But we did the same in the Socialist Alliance, which we were partially responsible for establishing. And I can remember my first meeting when we successfully won the Socialist Workers' Party to join the London Socialist Alliance. We had a guy, nice guy, called Rob Hoveman coming in, and we were reporting, you know, uh, well, I was actually the writer, why hasn't the SWP affiliated nationally? And my explanation, it has to be the founding leader um, of the SWP, Tony Cliff. He's the bloc. And Rod Hoveman joined those that called for us to be kicked out for daring uh, to have such a story. We survived by one vote. But my point still is that we reported on the um, Socialist Alliance, its high point, of where it stood over 100 candidates in the general election, its low point when it was dissolved, uh, both by SPEW and by uh, the SWP. We reported in terms of left unity. We report on the Labour Party. Now, we, we will not, we would strive not to put anybody in personal jeopardy. Um, you know, so if we've ever done that, um, then that um, is a mistake. Uh, but to the best of our ability, no, we've never done that. We've never put anyone um, um, in, in danger. Uh, what we've striven to do is to bring the politics uh, out and bring it so it's available to the entire movement. So the movement learns the politics of the movement. I want to know who Unite is backing. Um, you know, after all, we're just about to elect a new General Secretary of Unite. So what's Unite doing in terms of the arguments on the Labour left? I want to know who the new management in Momentum are backing. I want to know what the team we're in, in, um, you know, Labour Left Alliance. Who are they backing? I don't know. You know, <laughs> who's voting for what? Is the Socialist Campaign Group represented? I don't know any of that, and nor does anybody else, unless you've access to privileged information. So you're part of the official Labour left or you're part of the state uh, and you've got those inner relationships. We say that the politics, the, the political differences ought to be uh, out in the open. We've got nothing to be ashamed of unless you have something uh, to be ashamed of. And if you've got something to be ashamed of, well, we will strive to do our best and to bring it out uh, in the open. That's it, comrades. Thank you very much.